Welcome to What Would You Say You Do Here, a podcast about product management and all of the challenges that come with it. This is our first quarantine episode. We are recording remotely and we are drinking. Aaron, what are you drinking today? Katie, I am drinking a lovely pale ale from Creature Comforts, an Athens, Georgia brewery. What about you? What is What are you sipping on? I haven't actually been to the grocery store in a while, so I am stuck with the classic Jameson straight. Nice. Yeah. Very, very hardcore there. <laughs> so you'll have to forgive us if our audio quality isn't as good as the last few episodes or the last episode. We are winging it here. So we're going to be talking about data, how to use it and when to use it. And I think this is one of those things that is essential to product management. And it's something that probably a lot of new PMs ignore or don't really understand the importance of. Yeah, agreed. And I think it's something that is getting more and more important to use and leverage and understand as product management matures as, you know, a discipline. Um, but yeah, I, I do find that, you know, it's not always well understood how to use the data. So I guess what we're hoping to do today is talk about the different stages of uh, data analysis and when to use it and for what um, and how to go about doing that to the best of our knowledge. I would also say that as a product manager, I'm also often told that the discipline is full of people with soft skills. Well, if you don't want to be seen as someone with only soft skills, Having an excellent understanding of the data backing up your decisions and your roadmap is a great way to get rid of that soft skills qualifier. Yeah, and I'd have to say, like, I've been really impressed with the other product managers in my company um, with the amount of, like, you know, development and data analysis skills that they have. I mean, a lot of them are writing stored procedures and Python scripts uh, to build like more complex reporting to give insight into like what's going on with their, their users and customers. Uh, and I've definitely learned a lot from them. Yeah. I think the sky's the limit with data. There's no one who's going to come up to you and say, you know, you're, you're giving us too much data, slow it down. We just want to wing it. So the, the more in depth you can get with data, the better, as long as you know when to stop and when to actually just build something. Yeah. And so I think our discussion today will be agnostic of like the specific tools you're using to collect the data or analyze it or visualize it. Um, so we'll we'll talk a little more high level um, so that this could apply to, you know, any uh, analysis tool that you might have at your disposal. So I think that first thing that we wanted to talk about was the customer and product insights, where you get those uh, hypotheses, where you get your ideas from that you need to validate, that you need data to back up. Um, I definitely think this is a good area to where you can blend like a lot of hard data that you're collecting through like feedback channels, but also a lot of like anecdotal data that you might be getting through like customer interviews or conversations or just other insights you get from, you know, market research. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think you also get it too. Sometimes your executive comes to you and just says, we have to build this feature because this high value customers asked for it or the market is doing it and we need to make sure that we're competitive, that we stay competitive. Uh, or sometimes it's just a, you know, a pet feature by, by an executive or a founder. 
I think we've all seen that happen. Yeah, I think I, we've all been there. And uh, I usually a good first step is just to validate that that pet feature does make sense. Yeah. And generally, like, you may not have a choice about whether or not you have to build it. So, yeah, but it's good to at least uh, do the anal- upfront analysis to, to know whether or not you're, you're heading in the right direction. Or, you know, whether or not, like, the maybe the direction is right, but the exact idea that they proposed uh, could be refined a bit. Yeah, you could always go back to them and say, hey, the problem that you're trying to solve would better be solved in this other way. Absolutely. So let's talk about some of the uh, kind of customer and product insight data sources that are available to us as product managers. I know many of us probably have access to some sort of sales tool where you're tracking opportunities and, you know, obviously like what, you know, different deals and what, what stage of the pipeline they, they might be in. Um, so that's always good if you have something available like that. We happen to use salesforce.com at, at Samsara where I work and it does have some decent reporting uh, tools, but they're definitely, I, I, I found that they're not super easy to use out of the box. So we have to do a lot of customization in order to get them to work right. But it does give us good insight into how many opportunities are requesting a specific feature or you know different sets of features, uh, and then that does help with putting a, a dollar value actually to to those features if you needed to kind of rank them in some sort of quantitative fashion. Yeah, I think you said your company has a pretty good process for doing yeah, that. Yeah, so you? we we actually have we've got a great uh, we've got a couple of several processes that I, we could talk about. We weekly review like the top must have feature requests that are blocking deals. And that's between the product team and uh, our sales engineering team. Cause sales engineers, obviously like I, I find them to be like products, best friend, you know, kind of out in the field. And they'll usually tell you exactly what's happening and what the customer really needs. And they'll, they'll cut out the fluff that you might get from a, a sales rep or an account executive. So that's one, one pro- kind of process we have in place. Another is just like a, a report that I run in Salesforce with all of the uh, dollar value, like the annual contract value associated with specific feature requests. And then I can like rank them by like, you know, dollar value or number of customers that have asked for this. And then I can even sort it by like, what stage of the deal is it in? Is it, are these like, you know, if you, maybe it helps to filter out like, deals that have already closed or that you've won or lost um, and really just focus on deals that are still in the pipeline and active. If you're trying, if your goal is ultimately to, to drive revenue uh, with, with your features. That's such a good idea. And it's, it's so huge to tie those dollar amounts because, you know, the individual salesperson is really going to be hammering home that they need this specific feature for a specific account so they can close it. But their mind is also on their commission and what they need, you know, how many deals they need to close that month. But if you're comparing across customers and you've got that raw data that tells you, well, this customer doesn't really need a solution that anyone else needs, then you can you, you have that data to go back to them and say, I'm sorry, we just can't do it. So sometimes those it helps you with those no yeah, answers. As actually, well. I had that uh, experience today where one of our top uh, sales reps um sent me an email kind of asking for a, a feature that no one had ever asked for before. And luckily, you know, having, you know, recently worked on a kind of a, a quarterly planning for the upcoming quarter, uh, I knew exactly which features were commonly requested and 
what sort of dollar value is associated with them and we could confidently tell him, sorry, you know, like no one else has asked for that and we're not going to do that anytime soon. Pretty unusual for those uh, no one's ever asked for this before uh, questions to prove to be something that you really want to build, unfortunately. Yeah. And yeah, it's nice to be able to, I was, I mean, I was helpful, you know, I, I gave him a couple of workarounds, you know, both like existing features as well as features that are on the roadmap for the next quarter that I thought would get close to what the customer was asking for. But I was confident and comfortable telling him, no, we're not going to build that. Yeah. And, and it's not always just about the raw money per deal either. Sometimes it's about the type of business that you want to go after. You know, if they're asking for a product or a feature that you don't have and aren't planning on building, then your product really isn't the right solution for that customer anyway. True. And being able to understand, you know, how those requests are, you know, fall into different, you know, industries or verticals is also helpful if you're looking to expand into a specific vertical. Absolutely. So what are some other, uh, I think some other like anecdotal inputs to the customer product insights For me, my favorite is customer interviews. Yeah. I find that I I learned so much about not just their business, but all the whole ecosystem of products that they're using. It it, it always makes you realize that you're just usually like one of like many products that they're using. Yep. And definitely it it humbles you a bit. And it does. You're out there thinking you're the most important product that they're using and you find out that that you're not, that they're you're you're one of ten products that they open in a day. Exactly. But it is helpful to know what are, you know, what other products are you are, are in their ecosystem. So, you know, if you're working on integrations with other products, you you know, you can help use that information to help identify like likely, you know, partnerships and, and paths for building out those integrations. But for me, it also just tells me like, you know, what is the real problem they're trying to solve? And that to me, like what gives the best insight into creating the most useful features and the most useful products. Absolutely. I've had some just astounding surprises when I'm actually sitting there talking to or even watching a customer interact with a product. Sometimes it just ends up being completely different than the way I had imagined it. You know, you you do these upfront interviews, you've got a mock-up, you test it out, you roll it out, and then you sit down and watch someone use it or talk to them about how they're using it. And they come up with things that you never would have thought of. And sometimes that helps you solve additional problems. So it's it's really interesting. Absolutely. There's also market research, I guess, beyond, beyond this, understanding like how are other competitors or tangential companies uh, products solving similar problems? Yeah, you have to stay competitive. You can't just be in a bubble in your own bubble. Yeah. And so, I mean, you can, you tend to hear about these from your sales reps or your sales engineers who know like who are you competing with on any given deal. You start to build, like I've got kind of like a Rolodex of like the top competitors we go up against. It helps to have battle cards if you know, like here are their weaknesses and our strengths over their specific solution. And so just knowing, knowing that uh, helps better arm your, you know, your sales team with the information to help, you know, sell the deals and, and sell the value of your products. Yeah. Is it an actual Rolodex? It's not. I wish it was. I'm disappointed. It's a mental one. One other thing that I really like to use is uh, support tickets, especially when you're dealing with an existing mature product that you're looking at either feature enhancements or new features that are related to it. Those support tickets tell you the people that are in there using it every day on a, you know, really getting in there and know it well. What do they want? What problems are they having? Support tickets can be invaluable. 
Absolutely. I, I was tasked with identifying the, mo- the top three feature requests via support tickets. Um, and we don't, we don't have a great way of like systematically reporting on that. I, had, I, I just carved out like three hours the other week and just read through like hundreds of support tickets and kept a tally on like a little like a uh, legal pad of different issues that kept coming up and started giving me really good insight into like what was frustrating our customers. And made me realize that, you know, the way I think about problems are not the way that they think about them or the way they tackle them. And it it just helped me better, like, empathize, I think, with our our customers' problems. Absolutely. That's always eye-opening, too, because sometimes they don't even talk about the problem in the same way. So you go in with, you know, your keywords that you're searching through support tickets for, and you find some random ticket that causes something else. And suddenly you've got this whole new world that you're looking at. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, those are always really useful. And I'm really glad to... Uh, hear that you're doing it the same way that I am. You know, sometimes you feel like you're the only one out there reading thousands of support tickets. Yeah. So, no, you know. it definitely drives me a little crazy, but it's very insightful. We actually have a Slack channel that is um, hooked up to our Zendesk, and every single support ticket comes into the Slack channel. And like half the company's in there. And I just, I read those as they come in. I've got some keywords that I actually look at. So, if one of my keywords pops up, I look over in the channel. And I can look at that support ticket as it's coming in, which has been really useful. Incredibly distracting, but very useful. <laughs> I don't know how you do that. I would get no work done. I have to mute it when I'm when I'm heads down. Oh yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a some new Zendesk like reporting feature where like if you if you label your tickets correctly, like if you get really granular in how they how your like support team labels them, you could start looking for trends. Uh, we're just getting to the point. We just got access to this a couple weeks ago. Uh, and I've only started to play around with it, but uh, I'm excited to like come up with a more systematic way of like analyzing support ticket data. Maybe we'll follow up on a, a future episode about how that's going. Yeah, it's hard. Anything that relies on humans, you know, people are always going to look at things differently. So, so what one support rep thinks belongs under one tag, a different one thinks belongs under another tag, and so you know, chaos ensues. So. I think something that we're doing here is trying to automate some of that. I don't really know if that's mm-hmm. possible, but I know it's it's the dream of the new head of our support team to have those types of tags and categories automated so that the rep doesn't necessarily even have to, to tag it themselves. Nice. I would love that. Yeah, I'm thinking back to my old support days and ticketing systems have just come a very long way. We, we used to just write things in Salesforce, just commentary in Salesforce, and it's so much more sophisticated now. Okay, so now that you have an idea of you know what issues are important to your customers, uh, not next I usually like to come up with some sort of hypothesis. If I build feature X, I will increase adoption of my feature area by ten percent. Yeah, I think that statement can be anything. It can be you know drives adoption. It could also be as simple as causes fewer support tickets. Um, that's actually one that that I looked at recently. We were looking at um, removing a vendor and replacing it with some some internal systems. And I was looking at our support tickets and I saw, you know, a, a drastic increase when we stopped using this vendor. So, you know, I went to my CTO and said, hey, we can't get rid of this vendor. Our support tickets have gone, you know, have, have doubled or tripled in the have doubled or tripled in the past few weeks. And he actually asked me if I had thought about X, Y, and Z. And it was several different factors that also impacted the number of support tickets that we were getting in general, not just about this one particular uh, subject. 
So that was interesting that even my hypothesis, I, I had a hard time tracking down the data that I needed to validate that hypothesis. Or, or even just validating like what, what is the real like problem here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's another important thing is like once you even have defined the hypothesis and then what you want to measure, maybe taking it, like talking to other people and bouncing those ideas off of like, a, you know, someone who's not so close to the problem understand, are there other data sources I should be evaluating? That's a really good point, too. I think something that, that we tend to do as product managers is work, not really in a silo, but we do kind of get involved in our subject matter. And we don't necessarily talk to other product managers or other people outside of the department about our hypothesis, because we're used to just taking an idea and running with it. Whereas if you actually bounce ideas off of people who are uninvolved, they might actually see something that you don't or see it in a way that you're not thinking about it. That's a good idea. I think I'm going to bring that up in my next, we have a weekly or bi-weekly meeting of uh, PMs in my product group. And I'd like for us to spend some of that time actually like bouncing like hypothesis ideas off of each other to see if there's any other data sources or ways to measure it that I have not yet considered. Yeah, that's a good idea. I'll take credit for it. I'll give you credit <laughs> for it. Um, but there's other ways that you can validate a hypothesis. You know, you can you can test mockups. I think if you're dealing with a user interface, then mockups are, are an excellent tool. Even if you're just getting at somebody within the company to walk through a mockup with you, again, you're getting that feedback from somebody who's not you, who's not a close to the problem. Um, but you can also do user interviews. I know you've said that you've really enjoyed user interviews in the past. Yeah, I did some research recently around uh, messaging within our uh, our product's messaging platform, which I also am the PM for, and was just trying to understand how customers think about communication within their organization in general, what other tools they use to communicate externally with vendors or customers, mm -hmm. uh, and then you know what tools are they using to communicate internally, either within the office or across offices understanding exactly like what they need out of a messaging platform. Uh, and that was very insightful. And, and part of that was to actually show them some mock-ups of like some future ideas of like messaging that we were considering and getting their feedback. And so these were like interactive mock-ups, you know, we could click them and move things around and simulate, you know, actually like sending a, a group message. And it was really insightful because a lot of times customers would give me feedback on things I wasn't even necessarily asking about. Oh, they, they do that. They definitely do that. So I love, it's always good to have something like real or very close to real in front of them. Because um, yeah, you get you get feedback on things that you weren't even thinking about. I didn't even consider when you're like, you and your designer were like building that mock-up in the first place. One company that I worked for had us keep about 10 customers that at any time we could reach out to and ask questions about any kind of feature or problem that we wanted to solve. So we had to really work hard to develop those relationships because there's not a whole lot of people who will drop what they're doing and answer a bunch of user interview questions at a moment's notice. So it's really important to, to build those relationships with customers. I like that approach as well. Um, I have a, about five or so like customers that I know I could like pick up yeah. a phone and call them um, and just ask them about like, hey, what do you do? think about this problem? Yeah, that's, that's always helpful to have uh, a list of trusted customers that you can ask those kind of questions. So now that you've created your hypothesis and you've validated it, you've talked to customers, you've looked through your support tickets, you've looked in your CRM to see how much money it's going to make you, you got to go ahead and build the thing. Then what do you do? Great question. What do you do? <laughs>
you do need to go back and look at the things that you looked at initially. So the support tickets, you know, for my for my example earlier, I said that we were looking at support tickets going up. Um, actually, they had were probably had remained the same. So what I would anticipate if I actually went through with removing that vendor would be that support tickets would continue to remain the same or maybe even go down. So you do have to follow back up. You do have to talk to your users again after you've built your new feature, make sure that it works the same way. And maybe that's more user interviews. Maybe it's um, success metrics. And one thing that you had mentioned was the NPS score. Yeah. So I know we we measure NPS within our mobile app and our, our dashboard product. And we use that as an indicator of whether or not customers are pleased with us. And we have a lot of OKRs tied to like increasing the NPS score a certain amount. I want to say that we've been successful with that, but I had been reading more lately that, you know, there's a bit of like black magic to NPS and that it may not be as insightful or as good of an indicator of actual customer satisfaction with your product as you think it might be. And I think one of the, one of the problems with that I have read is that often because people are measured and incentivized based on NPS score that Often the, you know, the phrasing of the question will kind of like lead the customer to give a more positive review. And it definitely, it sets up the NPS to, to be more positive so that they could be successful yeah. and get that highest score and get that, you know, annual bonus. So I think there's definitely some caution uh, advised with using NPS alone. It should be a good barometer, though, you know, of whether or not, you know, you're heading in the right direction. But I don't know that it is an absolute measure of how successful you are at the moment. Yeah, after you said that, I went and looked it up and it looks like the Wall Street Journal did a survey or a study at least that showed that nobody is currently reporting that their NPS is going down. Now, that that could just be that who's going to say that? Who's going to say our NPS went down? Um, But it could be also what you're saying is that people are getting better at crafting that NPS to go up. They're getting better at asking the right question or incentivizing people to answer it the right way. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I don't personally think that there's any reason to throw it out, at least not yet until more research comes in. Um, But it's definitely something you shouldn't take it as the only data point. Sure. One other metric is success metrics. What does success mean? What will success mean to me once this feature rolls out? Exactly. Yeah. Actually, we've started making that part of our like requirements template is where you define like what is your success metrics that you're going to measure to know that this feature or product was successful how you know make sure that you're planning for that uh as a part of this project so i have though found i am often guilty of not always following up and measuring those success metrics i think we all do you had all that effort in the beginning yeah, we make we, we always are well intentioned in the beginning. I'm like, oh, yeah. I'm gonna launch this feature. I'm gonna measure the shit out of it, and then twenty five pages of requirements, and then it's released, and I'm on to the next thing by then. A month later, when your boss asks uh, you, "So, how are those success metrics going?" You have to scramble. Yep, I think we've all been there. There are tools out there that can help you with this. We use some of them that help us specifically with funnel analysis. So that question of once that feature goes out there, are customers using it in the way that I thought that they would? If they're not, that could be a problem. It could mean that I've misunderstood the problem. I've done something incorrect with the solution. 
So measuring that, are they going here first? Are they going there second? What are the steps leading them to my new feature? And is it what I thought it would be? Yeah, absolutely. I, I've, I've been using some funnel analysis recently. Um, first to understand like how many feature, how many customers are beginning to use a feature and then how many actually go through with like completing the action if there's two or three steps involved. And that can give good insight into the, is it easy to use? Does it need to be improved? Yeah. And it's so much more in depth than just did someone click on it or even, you know, maybe they bought the feature, but then they never used it again. Absolutely. That's it for this episode on data, how to use it and when. Bye. Sounds good. (laughs) See you out there, product land.